And this morning, uh, the lesson is called Hang On to Love, and we're talking about passionately, intensely loving people, okay? We're going to be in Matthew chapter 25 is where we're going to start. If you got your Bible and you want to turn there, do that. And while you're turning, I'm going to tell a story. And I'm telling you right up front that this is not one of those happy, fun stories that I usually start with. This is a very sobering story. So it's going to set the mood really for the things that we're talking about today. In 1926, a little girl was born. Her name was Norma Jean Mortensen. Her father was not in the picture, and her mother was in and out of mental institutions. So little Norma Jean spent much of her young life in foster homes. Now, foster homes in the 1920s and 1930s are nothing like they are today. They were really nothing more than boarding houses where the children would go and they would do chores to kind of work off their rent. Um, At eight years old, little Norma Jean was sexually abused by a man that was also living in the house. And when she went to her quote-unquote foster mom and told her about it, the foster mom gave her a severe beating and told her, my renters pay good money to be here. Don't you do anything or say anything that would cause anybody to feel uncomfortable or to leave. So at eight years old, Norma Jean found out that people did not care about what was really going on in her heart and in her life. She was told, just shut up. And live with it. Now she grew into uh, being a very pretty young lady and she got a lot of attention. And it's not that she minded the attention or anything, but she constantly asked, Does anybody see me for me? I don't want to be seen as just a pretty face. Does anybody see me for me? But they didn't. They saw just her outward beauty. She decided to move to Hollywood, and she was discovered by some talent agents. They changed her name to Marilyn Monroe, and they sold her as a, as a sex symbol. They cast her in the role of the dumb blonde in movies. She was wildly successful But all her life, she was saying, does anybody see me? Does anybody really want to know me? Not the face that's on magazines, but the person that is hurt. The person that needs a friend. The person that needs to be loved. But nobody wanted to know her for her. So on a Saturday night at the age of 36, Norma Jean, or Marilyn Monroe, took her own life. Just as she was getting ready to do this, she made some phone calls. And according to to one account, she called a fellow actor and told him that she had just taken enough pills to kill herself, and his response was, I don't care. 
When her maid came in the next morning and found her lifeless body laying across the bed, there dangling next to her hand was the telephone receiver that never got put back on the hook. A story was written in the local papers that asked the question, what really killed Marilyn Monroe? And the writer said that the dangling telephone was a metaphor for all of Marilyn Monroe's life. It was off the hook. She had never been able to connect with anybody. She never got anybody to talk to her. She never found anybody that cared enough to listen. I told you it was a downer of a story. But the question is, how many Norma Jeans do we run into day in and day out? How many Norma Jeans are outside of the church just asking, does somebody care? Does somebody love me? I'll take it even a step further. How many Norma Jeans are sitting in churches all over Tyler, Texas this morning? They may have a smile on their face. They may look successful on the outside, but they're saying, does anybody care? Does anybody really love me? This morning's lesson is about having an extraordinary love for people. You see, believers have responded to God's love for them. They've invited him to come into their life and change their life. But disciples respond to God's love by loving others. In Matthew 25, starting in verse 36, and I'm reading out of the the message version, says, then the king will say to those on his right, enter, you who are blessed by my father. Take what's coming to you in this kingdom. It's been ready for you since the world's foundation. And here's why. I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was homeless, and you gave me a room. I was shivering, and you gave me clothes. I was sick, and you stopped to visit. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then those sheep are going to say, Master, what are you talking about? When did we see you hungry and feed you, thirsty and give you drink? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and come to you? Then the king will say, I'm telling you the solemn truth. Whenever you did one of these things to someone overlooked or ignored, that was me. You did it to me. Now, most of us know the rest of the story goes on where he looks at the people on the left and he said, you didn't do these things. And when you didn't do it for somebody that was overlooked, when you didn't do it for for these people that are forgotten, then you weren't doing it for me. Now, notice, he didn't say you had never done anything. He didn't say that you hadn't uh, gone to see sick people that you knew and loved, that you hadn't uh, uh, sheltered somebody that you knew and loved. But Jesus said, even tax collectors can do that. Anybody can love somebody that loves them back. 
He was saying, you did this to people that were overlooked. You did this to people that weren't going to be able to turn around and love you back. And that's what made the difference. Most versions say, when you did this to one of the least of these, then you were doing it to me. Who are the least? Who are the least in your eyes? Who are the people that make you uncomfortable? Love them. Who are the overlooked and ignored by most churches? Love them. Who's been marginalized and forgotten by society? Love them. Let's take a few minutes just to look at how and who we're supposed to love. Then I want to show you just a few examples of of God's uh, scandalous love. His love for us is really so far beyond what we can even imagine. So first of all, who should we love? In Luke 10, starting in verse 25, it says, One day an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? And the man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, right, Right, do this and you will live. Love people and you will live. You love people, you finally figured out what it's about. Love people. But the man wanted to justify his actions, so he asked Jesus, Who is my neighbor? Now, Jesus could have easily just said, Everybody, everybody's your neighbor. But he took the opportunity to tell a story that jumps right into the middle of everything that was going on in their society and really things that are going on in our society too. You see, Jesus tells a story about a man that was headed down to the city. And along the way, he was attacked. He was beaten. He was robbed. And he was left for dead. Now, Jesus could have easily just said, and then somebody came along and had compassion and loved him and took care of him, but he didn't. He went right after the guy that was asking the question. He said, first of all, the preacher came along. The priest came along, and he saw the guy beat up, laying in the ditch, Of all the people that were coming along, wouldn't you think it would have been the preacher that would have had a heart of compassion to to go and check on this man, to love on this man? But the Bible says he saw him, and he went to the other side of the road and passed by on the other side. Now, what was he thinking? Well, being uh, a man who knows the law, he knew that if he touched that guy and this guy was dead, he would be ceremonially unclean for a whole week. 
How often do we justify things by saying, I can't stop and help this guy. I've got a call of God. I'm going to do something. You see, he was headed down to church. He was headed down to do what God had put him on this planet to do. So he thought. But God had put him on this planet to love broken people. But instead, he passed on the other side, saying, I'm too busy. In fact, what he was saying was, I'm afraid what would happen to me if I stopped and helped. See, then second comes along a good church person. And the Bible says the same thing. When the scribe came along, said he saw the man and he passed by on the other side of the road. Well, we obviously know where he went to church, right? Following the the, the lead of his pastor. And what was he thinking? I don't know. Maybe he was afraid of the, 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 the social outcome. What would people think if I got down in the dirt with this guy? So the two church people come by, and then Jesus could have easily said, and then a peasant came by, but Jesus went for the jugular. He had an outcast. He had an outcast. He said, a Samaritan came by. And if you don't know the background of the Samaritans, they were hated, they were despised, they were Jewish half-breeds, they were cultic worshipers of God. They weren't doing it right. But both of the church people came by, and they were concerned about themselves. They were afraid what would happen if they stopped. And here comes the one that that everybody hated, but he was concerned what would happen if he didn't stop. Jesus was using the irony of the Samaritan, being the hero of the story, not just to say do what he did, but to do it the way that he did it. Love your enemy. If that guy hadn't have been in the ditch, he may have spit on the Samaritan. But yet he stopped for him. He loved outside of his comfort zone. He loved the outcast. And we're to love the outcast. We're to love our enemies. We're to love the, uh, the hated. I had a friend that went to the Philippines about 20 years ago. He went to the Philippines with a mission group. And I asked him, what, what are you going to be doing? He said, we're going to rebuild a mosque that's in a village, a remote village that had burned down. And I'm going to be honest with you, that stretched me. I know the history of, of the Muslims in, in, in the Philippines. They haven't always been good to the Christians. They've persecuted the Christians. Yet here's this group. They're taking offerings from America to go build a, a mosque. And that stretched me. And I said, why are you guys doing this? Because there was a church in, in, in the vicinity that they supported. And when they contacted the church and said, hey, we're bringing these guys over. What do you want us to do for you? They said, we want you to rebuild this mosque for our neighbors. 
You see, when it had burnt down, all of the Christians went over to the Muslims and said, you can use our building for your services. And instead of taking all the American money and the American help to to do something for them, they said, no, do for somebody else. And it was such an expression of love that many of the, the Muslims were converted because they said, if that had been your church that, that burned, we wouldn't have asked you, we wouldn't have let you have meetings in here. We would have, we would have said that, that was God's justice. And we definitely wouldn't have asked for rich Muslims to come and rebuild your church for you. They didn't understand that kind of love, but it so overwhelmed them that many of them came to know Jesus. It's kind of like the the line from uh, the poet laureate of heavy metal music, Ozzy Osbourne. He said, maybe it's not too late to learn how to love and forget how to hate. You see, love sees no race, no religious or social or political barriers. Disciples are always more concerned about what would happen if they didn't love than the fallout because they do. So how do we love? We know who to love. Now how do we love? 1 Corinthians chapter 13, you've probably heard this if you've ever been to a, a wedding. They always read portions of this at a wedding. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, starting in verse 4, says, Love never gives up. Love cares more for others than for self. Love doesn't want what it doesn't have. Love doesn't strut, doesn't have a swelled head, doesn't force itself on others, isn't always me first, doesn't fly off the handle, doesn't keep score of the sins of others, doesn't revel when others grovel, takes pleasure in the flowering of truth, puts up with anything, trusts God always, always looks for the best, never looks back, but keeps going to the end. Paul was not describing the relationship between a man and a woman right there. I know we use it at weddings, and that's okay, but he was describing Jesus. He was saying, this is the characteristic of love. This is Jesus right here. This is the kind of love that God gives. He never forces himself on you. He doesn't fly off the handle with you. He doesn't keep record of your sins no matter what you think. He doesn't revel when you're groveling in shame. But he takes pleasure when truth flowers in your heart. He always trusts you. And always focuses on the best in you. He's in it with you till the end. You see, God's love is scandalous. He loved you before you were worth loving. His love chased you when you were unworthy of being caught. His love seeps into places it has no business being. Dark, gross, abysmal places. Like your heart and mine. 
That's the love that he has freely given. And a disciple freely gives it away. And I'm telling you, people will flock to a church where the disciples love like Jesus loves. I read the story about a, a young man in his early teens, lived in Chicago. His family didn't go to church, but there was a church in his neighborhood, and he kept running into people that went to the church. And after a while, he accepted the invitation to attend the church. And when he got in there, he experienced love like he had never known before. He experienced acceptance like he had never known before. In fact, they even, they even loved him and stood by him when he got into some trouble. After a while, his family moved to another part of the city. Yet this young man continued every Sunday to walk 45 minutes to church, then 45 minutes back home. And he had a friend ask him one time, why do you walk so far to go to church? There's plenty of churches in your neighborhood. And he said, those churches are probably good churches, but they're not for me. And she said, why not? And he said, because my church loves me. My church accepts me. He said, my church knows me even at my bad times, and they still want me. So he was willing to walk. And I'm telling you that God knows who they are. God knows the Norma Jeans. God knows the little boys in the neighborhood, and he wants them. See, a disciple's love for people is the invitation to come and experience God. Now, just as I'm, I'm closing up here, I want to I show you God's love in some unexpected places. You see, God loves messy people, just like you and me. He loves grafting messy people into his story. If you don't believe me, just look at Jesus' family tree. In Matthew chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, it says, Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah was the father of Perez and, and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Now, if you're just reading this, that sounds fine. Remember just a little while ago when we were singing, and we're singing, he's the lion of the tribe of Judah? Yeah, the Bible says Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. So Judah, being, being the man that God chose to bring the lineage of Jesus through, that must have been a righteous man. That must have been a holy man. Or at least he was some kind of great warrior or something. Right? But it's not the truth. It's this very story right here, being the father of Perez and Zerah. What happened was uh, Judah sleeps with somebody he thinks is a prostitute. Winds up being his daughter-in-law. And the result is a man named Perez. And God chose to bring the messianic lineage through this. Why would he do that? 
Why would he do that? Because he knew that thousands of years later, there would be people saying, God can't love me. He doesn't know how messed up my family is. And he'd go, oh, yes, I do. I got a messed up family too. It actually goes on. In verse 5, it says that Salmon, or Salmon, whatever his name was, was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Now, Rahab was not even a Hebrew. She was a worshiper of false gods. She lived in Jericho. And she wasn't even uh, somebody that the the people in Jericho liked. They pushed her out to the edge of the city because she was a prostitute. Yet she helped the, the Hebrew spies when they came to check out the city. And God spared her life. And not only did he spare her life, but he grafted her into the story of Jesus. Because she married a Hebrew man, and she wound up being the great, great, great grandmother of King David. Why? Because God loves redeeming messy people. And as long as we're talking about David, let's talk about David. Verse 6. Jesse was the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba, the widow of Uriah. Once again, if you just read this and you don't know the background history, you don't know why she was a widow. You don't realize that even though uh, David was said to be a man after God's own heart, he had his issues. He was a peeping Tom. He slept with somebody else's wife, got her pregnant, and then had her husband killed so he could marry her. But this was the man that was after God's own heart. Why? How can this be? Because God loves messy people. God's not afraid of our mess. He's not happy with our sin. That's not what I'm trying to say. But I'm saying God can work through any mess. He's not afraid of the mess. He just wants your heart. And if that wasn't bad enough, here comes Jesus himself. His mom got pregnant out of wedlock. You don't think that was a big deal? Joseph and Mary going to Bethlehem, and we think that, you know, that the Motel 6 was full. That's the reason they couldn't find a room. When the truth was, in a little bitty village like that, they didn't have any any hotels, motels, holiday inns. Somebody caught that. What they had was people with extra rooms in their house. This was the city of Joseph's family. Do you think they hadn't heard the stories? Joseph's going to show up with this girl that he's supposedly going to marry and she's already pregnant. They weren't going to have that under their roof. Oh, I'm sorry, there's no room. I'm sorry, there's no room. So the king of kings and the lord of lords, who we would think would be born in a palace, was born in a barn. Why? Because God's not afraid of mess. So much so, he said, I'll even let my son come in the midst of mess. He was born with a reputation. Oh, that's the illegitimate one. And they probably didn't say illegitimate. Let that sink in. 
God wasn't afraid to look at anyone's mess. Look it in the eye and say, love covers a multitude of sin. And it still does. It still does. So what do I want you to know? Sometimes, as good church people, we can be lazy with love. Sometimes we let too many opportunities slip by because it's inconvenient. But you see, disciples love messy people because they know that they were once a messy people too. What do I want you to do this morning? Let's commit to love like you've been loved. Let's look for the Samaritans in our lives and love them. Remember the question? Who makes you uneasy? Love them. Look for broken people that are usually overlooked by proper folks and love them.